You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Remain standing this morning, and I appreciate that. Turn to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. I don't know if you've realized it, but it's uh, cold and rainy outside. If there's ever been a morning that you wanted to uh, turn that alarm clock off and just roll over, I feel you. I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, however, uh, at some point during the next few minutes, my voice is going to start sounding like that phone call in the Peanuts uh, cartoons. Kind of gets wah, wah, wah. And it's at that moment, there's going to be a temptation that overcomes you to just check out. Uh, and, I, and I understand. I feel you. Just hang with me. Hang with me. All right? Ruth chapter 3. Verse 1, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on a cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking, But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. Father, we just want to say thank you this morning for your goodness and grace, and specifically, Father, that goodness and grace that found us. Father, there is nothing in this world, nothing that I found that could have changed my heart. Because, Father, you well know that I tried everything. And Father, I tried to be good. I tried to just go to church. I tried to, well, be a good son to my mom and dad. But at the end of the day, I couldn't change the heart that I had. I couldn't bring it to life. I couldn't find my way out of the darkness. I needed a light. I needed something greater than than what this world had to offer. And Father, in your sovereign grace and in your perfect timing, your grace found me and it changed me. And Father, people are looking for all kinds of things that they can anchor their life to. And Father, they're hoping that maybe this time this will work out different. Maybe this time this relationship or this new job or the extra money that they've made or the fame that they found online or something is going to finally fulfill their life. Finally, something is going to fit that hole. But Lord, I know, and many others in this room know, that if anything else is filling that hole other than you, then yet again we'll be empty. Father, you're the only one that can change us from the inside out. You're the only one that can take us from darkness into light. You're the only one that can give us a brand new heart. You're the only You're the only one who can bring spiritual life to spiritual death. You're the only one. And yet, Father, you have promised and you have made provision for all that we need. And all that is left for maybe some in this room is to express faith for the very first time in something greater than themselves and something greater than the world can offer. So, Father, we praise you. We thank you for the change that you've made in our life. And, Father, I pray that you guide us in your word this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. If you were to ever go to a traditional Jewish wedding, there would be some things that would happen in that wedding that looks very different than maybe the weddings you've went to that were, you know, more Western. 
one of the uh, events in the wedding or one of the things that will make you kind of question what they're doing is at one point during the, during the wedding ceremony, the, the groom and bride will take a, a wine glass or it may be a bottle and they'll wrap it up in a thick napkin and they'll put it down on the, the floor on the stage and either the groom or the groom and the bride will stomp it together and break the glass. And in Jewish culture, what that is kind of referring to or what that's symbolizing is that on the one hand, on that day, they're celebrating something beautiful and something amazing. But always in every celebration, there's always that downside. There's always that potential, well, for hearts to be broken. So the idea is, is that breaking that glass in front of their family and friends is basically saying we understand that while this is a beautiful day to be celebrated at the same time, Human beings make mistakes. So what we want to do is we want to break this glass and say, may, may our marriage never be broken like this glass. It's a symbolism of unity and oneness. Uh, but there's something else in, in most Jewish traditional weddings that, that you might have seen, or, or maybe if you ever attend one, you'll, you'll wonder why it's done like this. The, the front of the stage where the ceremony is happening, there's often, often uh, in more Western Jewish weddings, there'll be four posts and there'll be a sheet that's pulled over those four posts and be pulled down each corner to the ground. Or if it's a very traditional Jewish wedding, it may be four men that are holding the sheet and they may be standing on maybe elevated platforms holding the sheet overhead of the priest and the bride and the groom and their families as they join in under this sheet. It's a beautiful picture. And, and really that, that tradition comes right out of Ruth chapter three. It's the idea that that underneath that sheet, basically what's happening is it's symbolizing that the groom is providing a covering for his bride. In other words, she and her family are now coming together with his family, and we're going to become one. And the idea is that I'm going to take, in, in, in Jewish culture back in the Old Testament days, that the groom would, would take his, his robe and he would place it over his bride, showing that she is now under his care and under his protection. And to this day in Jewish weddings, when you see that canopy that's over top of the bridal party, it goes all the way back to Ruth chapter 3. We'll get to that in just a moment. God directed Ruth and Naomi from Moab to Bethlehem under his sovereign guidance and his providential care. They come to Bethlehem at just the time of the barley harvest. So just at the right time where they're going to be able, as two widows, remember, Naomi has lost her husband, Elimelech. Ruth has lost her husband as well. They're both widows. And now they've re re uh, returned back home at a point where they're going to be able to support themselves. But not only that, when Ruth goes out to glean in the fields, to be able to gather whatever food is left over so that her and her mother-in-law can survive, of all the fields that she could have picked, of all the fields that she could have walked into, she just happens to walk into the field of a guy named Boaz. And Boaz begins to just pour out blessings upon Ruth and Naomi. He gives them way more food and gives them much more freedom, or at least Ruth freedom to glean in the field. He tells the other male workers to not lay a hand on her. He, he tells Ruth that she is free to glean even among what has been harvested. He even invites Ruth to sit at his table while his workers eat. He, he invites Ruth to drink water with the rest of his workers, even though she's a widow and even though she is poor, and even to the point that she is not even an Israelite. She is a Moabitess, who has now committed her life to staying with Naomi, her mother-in-law, no matter what happens, and, and Ruth has become a believer in Jehovah God. 
Now, last week I told you about God's sovereignty and his providence. God's sovereignty is God's right and God's ability to do as he sees fit. In other words, God is in control of the entire universe. Nothing that happens in the universe goes without passing through his hands first. He is in complete control. He holds the universe in his hand. He holds the earth in just the right position from the sun. But at the same time, God is not all somewhere in the universe disconnected from his creation. We learn through his providence that yes, God is sovereignly in control, but yet God works through his sovereignty through his grace and through his wisdom in real time and in real space. So on the one hand, Ruth makes a decision to go out and glean. That's something she had to do to be able to support her and Naomi. And she just happens to pick a field. But as she's making these choices, God is directing her paths. God is directing her steps. That yes, Naomi and Ruth are making choices, but make no mistake about it, God is guiding all of it to his ends and to his purposes. We're going to see that even more today in chapter 3, you see, when Naomi and Ruth came to Bethlehem, Naomi's plan was very simple. Naomi's plan was just to simply survive. As two widows who have no ability to really provide for themselves or protect themselves, they're simply going to hope that everything works out. And, and Naomi's plan is to simply send Ruth out into a field to glean. When she comes back and she tells Naomi, about this guy she met named Boaz, well, all of a sudden, Naomi begins to think of another plan. And it wasn't her plan, necessarily. It was the plan of God that was built into the Israelite culture. One thing you have to remember, especially in the Old Testament, well, Old Testament and New, but particularly when we're reading these stories in the Old Testament, God's covenant with Abraham runs through all of the pages of the Old Testament. And one of the parts of that covenant is that God was was serious about the family. He said that Abraham's descendants would be as many as the stars in heaven and the sand on the beach. So God was intentionally focused on the family unit. And not only that, he made provision in the law that a widow would be taken care of. And we're going to look at that provision today because it is vitally important for us to see this and to understand what God is doing in the background, bringing Ruth into the field of Boaz. Naomi's new plan is going to be focused on this aspect of God's law. And while Naomi and Ruth are making decisions about their life, God is directing their path to accomplish his ends and his purposes. Look at verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Now, in the previous chapter, Ruth comes back home, and she tells Naomi that she ended up in the field of a guy named Boaz. And in that chapter 2, that previous chapter, Naomi raises this as an issue. She says, you know, Boaz is one of our relatives. He is related to her ex, her, her, her husband that has passed away, Elimelech. Remember, he died in Moab. So Boaz is related to Elimelech. Now, the reason that Naomi brought that up is because it's very important. So Naomi begins to seek the best for her daughter-in-law. Now, we, we may wonder, is, is Naomi's intentions truly pure here at this point? Because Naomi would understand that if, if Ruth is able to be married and, and to have a child, that that would certainly impact her life. So is, is Naomi really looking out for Ruth, or is she just looking out for her best interest? I think by this point, the Naomi that we saw come back to Bethlehem, the one who was filled with bitterness, the one who's blamed God, the one who said to her friends, don't call me, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for I am bitter and I am empty. 
Even in that moment, she failed to realize that God had provided Ruth. And I don't think in that moment she realized all that God was up to through the life of her daughter-in-law. But I think by chapter 3, she begins to see just a glimpse of what God is doing. That That Ruth would end up in the field of Boaz, a near relative to her husband who had passed away. I believe that Naomi is looking out for Ruth. I believe that Naomi wants the best for Ruth. And I believe that what Naomi is getting ready to say to Ruth has as its goal not only to help Ruth provide and protect herself in the many years ahead, but also the fulfillment of what God is doing. Look at verse 2. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were with? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So here we have Boaz, and he is going to be in the threshing floor. Now, we got to get a little bit of historical background to kind of understand what's going on here. Remember, the book of Ruth is set within the time frame of the previous book, the book of Judges. And in that book, we find out that the nation of Israel has no leader. They have, they have no king. They have no one who's leading them. Joshua has passed off the scene. The people made a commitment to continue to follow God. Yet, when they, uh, a little bit of time goes by, and the, the verse that comes up over and over in the book of Judges is this, the people began to do what was right in their own eyes. In other words, they turned away from God. So in the book of Judges, we see these cycles of of the people disobeying God. God brings judgment. The people cry out to God. God raises up a leader. The the leader leads them back to repentance or should lead them back to repentance. They repent, repent, and then God begins to bless again. You remember Judges chapter 6, a guy by the name of Gideon? There's this guy by the name of Gideon, and this angel appears to him. And where do we find Gideon at the beginning of the story? He's at the threshing floor. And he is threshing, which means he's, he's taking what has been harvested, and he's throwing the stalks up into the air, and the wind would blow the stalks away, and the, the food, the morsels of food would fall back down, the barley grain and the, the wheat grain would fall back down, and they would gather it up. Well, we find Boaz at the threshing floor, and it's, what's interesting is he's there at night. He's spending the night there which was also not uncommon because in the days of the judges, not only were the people turned against God, but you had all of these tribes around the nation of Israel who would come in and rob and kill and steal and destroy. Gideon, those people were called the Midianites. Okay, now, Boaz is at the threshing floor. They've already completed the harvest. They brought the harvest into the threshing floor where they're going to separate the stalks from the food. Boaz is going to stay there all night because he's afraid that someone will come in and steal all of the food that they've worked so hard to bring in. So Naomi sees this as an opportunity. She says to Ruth, see, he's at the the winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Verse 3, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak. Naomi's plan begins to kind of take motion here. Now, we're going to see this plan unfold, and and when we read this and when we look at this together, in our Western eyes and our Western culture, there's going to be a question mark that comes up in our mind. It's inevitable. What is Naomi actually telling Ruth to do here? It seems a little bit like it's impropriety. It seems like it might be a little bit, well, shady. So here's what Naomi says to Ruth. Ruth, go take a bath. Go anoint yourself, which basically means to put some oils on that had a real strong fragrance. Almost kind of like our idea of perfume, but it had much more of an impact in this culture. And also put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. 
But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies and then go uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. Okay, now the red flags are going up all over the place in your mind, right? Is Naomi putting Ruth and Boaz in a really compromising position for her own gain? Now I will tell you that there are devotionals, there are commentaries that will tell you exactly that. As a matter of fact, I've got commentaries in my office that will tell you that what's happening here is against God's will. That this is, this is wrong, and it's putting Ruth in a situation to compromise her integrity, as well as Boaz, and Naomi's doing it for the sole purposes of getting what she wants out of it. Folks, I cannot begin to tell you how far off base that really is. So let me culturally bring you off that edge of like, what's going on here? Is, is, he, is she putting Ruth in a position to compromise even the law of God? Not at all. But when our Western eyes read this, we're like, well, we start drawing conclusions. Well, let me, let me unpack some of this. So there's this idea of the Gael, the kinsman redeemer. Gael is the Hebrew word for redeemer. And, and the Gael has the responsibility within Israelite law, several responsibilities, because remember, God loves the family unit. He wants to protect the family unit. And so therefore, the idea of, of a widow, God built something into the law to take care of widows, especially widows who were still of an age where they could marry and have children. And this idea of a Gael is the idea that the nearest relative, the nearest relative of Naomi would be a candidate to marry Either Naomi, which is not going to be the case because of her age, but now it's going to be the focus, Ruth, her daughter-in-law. So Naomi's nearest relative, or actually Elimelech's nearest relative, Agael, has the opportunity and the responsibility to marry Elimelech's daughter-in-law. And not only that, but to provide offspring. And what's interesting in this in Israelite culture is that when her and when when Boaz and Ruth would, would get married and have a child, they'd often name that firstborn son, get this, Elimelech, to carry on the name. So here is Naomi saying to Ruth, Ruth, Boaz is our nearest relative, he is our redeemer, and we need to put a situation together here to ask him, to force him, to get him to consider his responsibility as the kinsman redeemer. So here's what Naomi is saying to Ruth. Ruth, take a bath, anoint yourself, Take out, put on your cloak. In other words, Naomi is saying to Ruth, Ruth, you go present yourself as a bride who is now ready to take the next step with Boaz. It was, it was the responsibility of Boaz to step up. But Naomi is doing something very risky here. Naomi's doing something that's a big step of faith and putting Ruth in a position to where they're basically calling Boaz to step forward and fulfill his duty. But not only that, notice that phrase, put on your cloak. In Israelite culture, when a widow would, would lose her husband, they would often be in mourning for a long period of time, even years. The clothes that they would wear, the way they would act would tell everyone around them that they're still in mourning. So if there's, if there's young men who are looking to maybe, you know, begin a relationship with a young lady who's a widow, if she's still wearing her mourning clothes, if she's still wearing her clothes mourning the loss of her husband, you were to not, you were to not engage. So notice when Naomi says, put on your cloak, what she's saying is, is leave your grave clothes off and put on your clothes that a bride would put on. Put on your clothes that would say to Boaz, I am past my mourning now, and I am ready for the kinsman redeemer, which happens to be you, Boaz, to step forward. 
And then Naomi says, go to the threshing floor at night, wait till he gets his belly full after working all day. He's going to be very tired, so he's going to lay down. And then, then here's what you do, Ruth. You go to his feet and you uncover his feet. Now, this sounds really odd. Uncover his feet and lay down at his feet and then wait and see what happens. Folks, I can't begin to tell you how risky this is. Now, understand Ruth, Ruth did not grow up in Israelite culture. She, she doesn't know exactly what all this means. She doesn't know exactly what a kinsman redeemer is, not the way that Naomi would. But notice how Ruth replies, verse 5. And all that you say, I will do. So this is not like Naomi taking the risk. This is Ruth taking the risk. And she's not only risking her integrity. We don't know how Boaz is going to respond. Boaz could take advantage of her in all the wrong ways. Boaz could get very angry and throw her out. Boaz could get scared to death and run away. This is a big risk. And not only a risk of what Boaz is, how he's going to respond, but this is a big risk for Ruth to go to the threshing floor at night. So let's see what happens. Verse 6. So she goes down to the threshing floor. She did exactly as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Why did Naomi tell, him to, tell her to wait till he ate? It's, again, is Naomi doing something subversive here? No. It's just Naomi is being very practical in this moment. And she's saying, Ruth, don't, don't approach him when he's working. Don't approach him when he's fixing a meal. Approach him after he's eat, after he's laid down, he's had a hard day at work, then. That's just, that's just practical advice. So Boaz, as you would imagine, he lays down after working all day and after getting a, a good meal, he, he's out. He's gone. He goes to sleep. So then after everything had calmed down in the threshing floor, Ruth comes over to Boaz and she, she pulls the blanket or the covering back from his feet and she lays down at his feet. And get this picture. She takes part of the covering that Boaz has and maybe covers herself up with it. Now, again, it's at this moment, devotionals and commentaries go all over the place. They begin, they begin to suspect that there's something sexual going on here when in fact there's not. Why do we know that? What do we know about Ruth all through this story? What are we going to know about Ruth through the entire book? that she is an honorable woman, that she is a woman who has character and integrity, even, even more so than the nation of Israel has at this moment in their history. As a matter of fact, Ruth and Boaz both are a contrast to where the nation of Israel is. The nation of Israel has lost its integrity. The nation of Israel has turned its back on God. The nation of Israel was doing what was right in their own eyes. And in the middle of that chaos, what do we find? We find a Moabitess and, a, and an Israelite man who are doing the right things for the right reasons. Folks, make no mistake about it. This is not a story of some kind of sexual deviancy. This is a story about the sovereignty and the providence of God being worked out in the lives of two people. And it's beautiful. It's awesome. So here we have Ruth laying at the feet. Remember I told you about those traditional weddings, how that covering would be over the bride and groom and family? Guess where it comes from? Right here is where it comes from. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. Why would he be startled? Well, there's somebody here. Could it be somebody stealing grain? Or here's the other possibility. During this season of harvest and threshing, prostitutes would go and make themselves available to these men who were staying all night in these threshing floors. And Boaz realizes there's a woman laying at his feet. By the way, a place of humility. So he's startled. He turned over and a woman laid at his feet. He said, who are you? Because he, he couldn't see. And 
And listen to, listen to Ruth's response, verse 9. And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings. That can also be interpreted as spread the corner of your garment over me. Spread your wings over me, over your servant, for you are a Gael. You are a redeemer. You are, Boaz, you are the one under Israelite law that is supposed to step up and become the Gael. Now, the Gael had other responsibilities. One responsibility was, is if, if the widow, if the widow Naomi, if her husband had been killed, if he'd been murdered, it was also the responsible of the Gael, responsibility of the Gael, to go track down the killers and bring them to justice. A Gael could also step in if, if land was being stolen away from the family. If, if land had been sold because the family was impoverished, the Gael had the responsibility to step in and buy that land back and secure it for the family. But in this situation... The Gael's responsibility was to be a redeemer for Ruth. Spread your garment over me. And to this day, when you see a traditional Jewish, Jewish wedding, what you see is a garment, a canopy over the entire wedding party because of Ruth chapter 3. You got to keep in mind also that that Ruth and Boaz have spent quite a bit of time together in the fields. The story moves along pretty quickly, but we know that from story to story, from narrative to narrative, there's, there's times where Ruth and Boaz are spending time together. And then love is developing. And, and so now we're at this moment where, where Ruth really steps out. I mean, she is out there on the cliff. She looks at Boaz and says, you have a responsibility. I have taken off my clothes of mourning. I have now put on the clothes of a Bride-to-be, Boaz, what say you? Listen to what Boaz says. Verse 10. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, this gives a little bit of insight into Boaz. We realize that Boaz is actually an older man. Boaz has, has never been married, more than likely. And, and Boaz would have never thought that this young woman, this young Moabitess, would have ever shown any interest in him. So the question is, is why didn't Boaz propose to Ruth? Why, why didn't he take the steps necessary? Well, one reason is, is because he thought she was going to pursue younger men. That he would have never been in the running. But there's another reason. There's another reason. There's another family member who's closer to Elimelech than he is. And he is actually supposed to be the kinsman redeemer, not Boaz. So now we have two problems. We have, well, one, one issue as to why he didn't propose. He didn't propose because he didn't think he was in run. But number two, he didn't propose because he knows there's another relative that is closer than he is. Notice what he says. He says, and now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. That statement, that phrase, takes us right back to Judges 6 again. Because there in that phrase, in that text in Judges 6, where that angel comes and sees Gideon for the first time, you know what the, you know what the angel says to Gideon? Well, hello there, mighty man of valor. That's exactly the same phrase in the Hebrew that we see right here. A worthy woman for Judges and Judges 6, it is the idea of a person of valor, a person of integrity, a person of honesty. No, Ruth is not there because of impropriety. Ruth is not there to take advantage of Boaz. Ruth is not there to 
have some kind of uh, moment where she, well, forgets about what it means to be a follower of Jehovah God. No, she is there because Boaz has a responsibility to fulfill. And because of a big step of faith and a big risk that she took, Boaz looks at her and says, I will be your Gael. Verse 13, remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you good, let him do it. In other words, if this other closer relative, if he will step in and take his responsibility, I'll step back in, in, in fulfillment of God's law and God's commandment for his people. I will step back. He can step forward. But if he's not willing to redeem you, if he's not willing to be your Gael, then I will be. I will redeem you. I will. Well, I will be your husband. Verse 14, this again shows the integrity of Boaz. So she laid his feet until morning. Not only Boaz's integrity, but Ruth, look at this. They're in a, in a place together, alone. There's no impropriety. There's no taking advantage of one another. Simply two people living out their integrity before God and before their community. Let it be known, he says, verse 14. And he said, let it be known. Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor and he said, bring me the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six, bar, six measures of barley. Boaz is concerned about what are people going to think if they see Ruth leaving the threshing floor early in the morning. Obviously, she stayed all night, so I want to protect her integrity, and I want to protect mine, so I'm going to give you food to take with you. And when people see you leaving with food, they're going to know, well, that's what she's been doing all along, that Boaz has been helping Ruth and Naomi. So Ruth goes back home. And Naomi says to her, how did you fare, my daughter? Verse 16. Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, and before he said to me, you must go back, you must not go back empty-handed. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but he will settle the matter today. In other words, don't, don't worry, Ruth. Let's let him have the space and time to work this out. Now, if we've been paying attention to all that God has worked out up to this point, we should have quite a bit of confidence in how this story is going to turn out. Because God has worked out all the details of their life to bring about chapter 3. Chapter 3 is the turning point. Chapter 3 is where we begin to see what God is doing. In chapter 3, we see the mighty hand of God knitting all of this together and what a beautiful story it is. If all we get from the story of Ruth is a couple of widow women who God provided for through a guy named Boaz, and eventually at the end of the story, there's a beautiful wedding, and they lived happily ever after. If that's all we get from the book of Ruth, we've missed the point of Ruth. As I'm, as I'm reading chapter 3 and studying this week, I, I begin to realize that not only the sovereignty and the providence of God, but I begin to think about how in the New Testament... It talks about the church and Jesus Christ being bride and groom. I couldn't get away from that imagery. Paul uses it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says that Jesus is a bridegroom and we are the bride. And, and that, whole, that beautiful text in John 14 where it says that Jesus has gone away to prepare a place for us. As, a, as our groom, he's preparing a place where he and his bride will dwell together for eternity. He's gone away to do that. One day, the groom is going to retire, re return, and, and the bride and the groom are going to be brought together, and we'll be together with him forever. And I couldn't get away from that imagery. And I begin to see how that the imagery of our relationship to Jesus through salvation, through faith, 
is viewed or how we can see it right here in the life of Ruth and Boaz. That Ruth's, through the steps that Ruth has taken, we see the love between Ruth and Boaz and we see Boaz and his responsibility. We see Ruth and her taking that risk of faith. And I begin to see what Naomi is saying to Ruth. And all of a sudden I begin to see that, man, this is a perfect image of what it looks like for someone to follow Jesus and to put their faith in him. If you go back to verse three, Naomi says to Ruth, go wash yourself. And I begin to think about that, that, that we are to clean up. If you've put your faith in Jesus, that we're to walk in holiness and righteousness, that we are to, we are to live our life as light to a dark world. And how do we do that? By living by the precepts that Christ and the Bible and the Holy Spirit has set out for us in the counsel of his word, that we are to live a life, well, that speaks of Jesus. You know, I know that just like I do, I know that you as well, that there's times you go to Christ and you ask him for forgiveness and you ask him to, to help you with whatever temptation you're dealing with and and he provides that help and he provides that guidance and he provides that help in the times that you need it. But I think there's plenty of indication in the New Testament as a follower of Jesus that there are times where Jesus simply says to us, stop it. Stop it. Stop what you're doing. Stop going back to that mess. Stop running and falling over that temptation. Stop running towards darkness. Just simply stop. And in Naomi's words to Ruth, Ruth, you need to clean up. You need to clean yourself up. You need to wash up all through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament. What do we see? We see this cleansing as a response to following Jesus and honoring him. In the Old Testament, we have the Old Testament priesthood that would have to take a bath before they would perform their duties. We find out over in John 13, there in that moment where Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples as an act of humility and service. And what does Peter say? Peter says, oh no, Jesus, you're not going to give me a bath. You're not going to wash my feet. And then Jesus says to Peter, Peter, unless you let me do this, you have no part with me. And then Peter flips immediately and says, oh, well, in that case, give me a whole bath then. And Jesus says, Peter, you don't need a bath. I'll tell you what you do need. You need cleansing. You see, Peter, you've been walking around out in this dirty nasty, filthy, sin-cursed world, and some of that stuff is clinging on you, and, and you need to let me clean you up. This moment where Naomi says to Ruth, Ruth, clean up. Prepare yourself for your groom. I think from our standpoint as followers of Jesus, new covenant followers of Jesus, there's some things we just need to cut out of our life. There's some things we just need to stop. There's some things we just need to let go into the past. There's some things that you're clinging to that you don't need to cling to. Matter of fact, you're clinging to that more than you are God. It's time to let that go. One of the reasons your worship is hollow, one of the reasons your prayer life simply isn't going any higher than the ceiling is because in that moment you're carrying something with you that you were never meant to carry with you. You were meant to abandon it. Not only does she say, Ruth, clean up, she also says, power up. Notice this, anoint yourself. All through the Old Testament, we have this imagery of anointing. The, the priest would be anointed. They'd pour oil on his head, and it would run down and drip off of his beard. And it was, the, it was the imagery of the Holy Spirit's presence in the person's life. In a new covenant, in a New Testament standpoint, we know that the Holy Spirit just doesn't come alongside us, but he dwells in us. And Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
He says, in other words, let the Holy Spirit control you. Be yielded to him. It's not as though you need more of the Holy Spirit. You got 100% of him at the moment you put your faith in Jesus. Amen? At the moment you put your faith in Jesus, you got 100% of the Holy Spirit right then. And then we spend our rest of our life surrendering over and over and over again. That's what Paul means by being filled. He's not saying get more. He's saying simply surrender to what's already there. Yield to the Holy Spirit. The idea of anointing, the idea that the Holy Spirit guides our steps, the idea that the Holy Spirit illuminates our path. For, for Ruth, it was simply putting on this fragrance that would have filled the room. So not only are we to clean up and to anoint ourselves, to surrender the Holy Spirit, he also says to put off. Notice what Naomi says, put on your cloak. Take off your grave clothes, put on your cloak. Put off the old life, put on the new. Put on the clothes that say to Boaz, you are ready to move forward in a relationship. You are ready to be married. You're no longer mourning the death of your husband. Paul writes in Romans chapter six that we're to, to, to let the old man die, that with the moment we put our faith in Jesus, that we are, we are saying to the world that we have died and been resurrected to new life. And then he says in that text, I think it's in verse 13, don't longer, no longer let your members be members of unrighteousness. In other words, put off the old man and put on the new. There's nothing in your old life that can give you any fulfillment anyway. There's nothing back there for you. There's nothing back there that's going to give you life. What is giving you life is your faith in Jesus. Walk with him. Put off the old. Put on the new identity. Put on the newness of grace and mercy. Then she looks at Naomi, or Naomi looks at Ruth and says, now do these steps. Go lie down. Go do these things. In other words, you need to prepare yourself, Ruth. Ruth had to prepare herself for what was about to happen. This was a huge risk. So Ruth is going through the steps in her head, and she follows them exactly. We need to prepare inwardly. We need to think about what it means to follow Jesus. We need to think about what it means to worship him. The writer of Hebrews gives us some help here. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. So did you prepare for worship this morning? And if so, how? Did, did, you, did you prepare all week? And you know that when we gather here this morning, you know, oftentimes we'll make the statement, I go to church to get filled up. Well, there's really not a lot of scriptural support for that, but here's what, here's what we find in scripture, that as we live out our faith throughout the week, Sunday morning becomes the overflow of what we've been doing with our families all week, worshiping him and honoring him. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10. Pick it up in verse 19. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says that in this new relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ, that his blood made that possible. And now we have the confidence to enter into God's presence, the holy places, by the blood of Jesus, verse 20, by a new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain that is his flesh. So the writer of Hebrews gives us some imagery here. On the one hand, the temple was veiled. The inner place of the temple where the holy place was had a, had a curtain that hung between it and the outer part of the temple. And when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was torn from top to bottom. But also, he says that not only was that curtain torn, saying to the whole world, you now have access to God, but it was also through his flesh being torn, the crucifixion itself, that made it possible for us to be reconciled to God. Verse 21, and since we have a great priest, Jesus, over the house of God, 
He's now going to give us three things to let us do. Number one, let us draw near with a true heart, full in full assurance of our faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean with an evil conscience. This goes right back to the cleansing that I was talking about. When we draw near to Christ, let us do so with integrity. Let us do so with honesty. Let us do so with a heart well, that is contrite, that is broken over the sins that we've committed. And then in that place, we will find that our consciences, our sins can be washed clean. He said also, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. In other words, be steadfast in your profession. Be steadfast in the truth of God's word. Don't waver. Be focused. Be set in what you believe. Don't back off. This is where your hope is. He says, let us draw near. Let us hold fast. And verse 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. You know the rest of that verse, right? Not neglecting the gathering of ourselves together as the matter of some, but even so much more as we see the day approaching. That last let us, let us stir one another up. In other words, don't let us forsake the assembling. Don't let us forsake the body of Christ. Be about the work that God has given us to do. These are the preparations that we do inwardly to prepare for our worship outwardly. And then finally, back in Ruth, if you look at verse 5, she replied, all that you say I will do. So we need to clean up. We need to power up through the Holy Spirit. We need to put off the old and put on the new. We need to prepare ourselves inwardly as we worship and follow Jesus, but we also need to follow through. And this is obedience. Ruth obeyed Naomi down to the last detail. Now, I would have to imagine that just like you and I at times when Christ calls us to do something, we have a lot of questions about why we're doing it. Ruth had to have had some questions. As a Moabite woman, going down into a threshing floor and laying down and asking for Boaz to put his garment over top of her seems very odd and outlandish. Yet, she follows every point to the letter of what Naomi said. There is always risk involved. There is always sacrifice involved. There is always unknowns when Christ calls us to obedience. But nonetheless, our response of worship to Christ is obedience. How do you know that you're a follower of Christ? How do you know that you've been changed? How do you know that on the inside you're a new person? It's because on the inside you desire to follow him. You desire to obey him. You desire to show your love and devotion to him in obedience. If you love him, as John says in 1 John, if you love him, you will keep his commandments. Obedience, obedience is the mark of true faith. In this story, as we've seen God's providential hand work all the way through this story, down in the, in the most smallest of details, what field Ruth is going to glean from, we see God working out a greater and more beautiful plan. And so it is in your life, even in the smallest of details, start looking as an act of worship. Start acting as, a, as an act of obedience. Start looking for the hand of God working in your life. And when you see it, and you will, the next obvious question is, God, what are you up to? What are you doing? There's a story and a plan that's greater than my hurt and my pain and my failures. What is that work that God is up to in your life? Have you slowed down long enough to consider that God is doing something in your life? 
Father in heaven, your goodness and grace is sufficient. You are good because that's who you are, but you also are gracious towards us. Lord, your word says that while we were yet sinners, Christ came and he died for us. That while we were yet sinners, rebellious, that you came and lowered yourself even to the place of a bondservant, a slave, and you took on our sins. You became sin for us so that we could go free. And so, Father, you've been working that plan. That plan has been in place since eternity past. And even through characters like Ruth and Boaz, your greater plan is at work. It was at work then, it's at work now. So, Father, this morning in this time of commitment, maybe we just need to clean up. Maybe some things we just need to stop doing. Maybe there's some things we need to confess. Maybe there's some areas in our life where we're not surrendered to the Holy Spirit. Maybe our faith is not as important to us now as it once was. Or maybe they don't have faith at all. Father, whatever the needs are, you know their hearts. Nothing is hidden from you in this moment. We ask, Lord, that you work powerfully in their life even now. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, 